And it's now my, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, is it not my pleasure, my distinct high honor to welcome our own beloved Emily Swan. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. That guy. <laughs> oh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right, we are in the middle of our sermon series called Navigating the Difficult Questions. And this week we're going to be talking about how Christians relate to people of other faith traditions. So there are a lot of different ways right, that Christians think about the posture that we take toward other religions that are considered orthodox within our broader tradition. And so the approach that I'm going to offer follows um, somewhere on the the spectrum of what many scholars call the mutuality model, or sometimes it's called pneumocentric, which sounds fancy, but it just means Holy Spirit centered. So to start us off this morning, I'm going to read just a few paragraphs um, from the foreword that my friend Deborah G. and Lee wrote for Ken and I's book. And I want to read this because I felt like she was particularly um, vulnerable and raised a very sensitive question in a way that will help us get into this. So here, this is what Deb wrote. She said, when I was a child, my grandmother would visit my family for weeks at a time. She'd raised me as a baby, and so even though I later lost my native Cantonese, and she spoke very little English, we shared a deep connection. And I loved her so deeply that when she would leave, I would return to the room in which she slept, and I would look for traces of her essence left behind. Her smell, a forgotten bobby pin, the soft indentation in her pillow. Sometimes I would cry from missing her. My grandmother used to live on a farm in southern China, and she never received a formal education. She practiced Buddhism, and she cared deeply for her children and her grandchildren. She was also one of my greatest spiritual teachers. She surrounded me with a bounty of her love, the most powerful spiritual gift that you can offer a child. And after I became a Christian in my teens, it baffled me to hear Christians invalidate my grandmother's love as a form of spiritual teaching. And they asked if I worried that she, along with my other non-Christian family members, would go to hell. And the deeper that I got into evangelicalism, the more I saw the theological framework driving this belief, how it hurt the most vulnerable, and it dismissed their perspectives and their theologies. I saw how it cut us off from experiencing the divinity or the image of God standing before us in different human beings. I remember sitting in countless seminars about converting quote-unquote non-believers to our quote-unquote absolute truth and sensing the smallness of our collective imagination. And this is why in part, although for other reasons as well, but it's why in part my friend Deb no longer identifies as Christian because she was offered this very black and white picture of how Christians relate to non-Christians, that you're either in or you're out. But this idea that if you don't say a prayer confessing Jesus is Lord in this lifetime, then you're going to spend an eternity in hell, is a minority view in Christianity. Right? That's actually a minority view. Now, Ken gave a really great sermon last week that I think is worth listening to online if you missed it where he went through the, the various words that are translated as hell in scripture. And he talked about what they would have been um, heard as for the original listeners. And he gave a brief glimpse of how Westerners, how we came to imagine um, hell as this place of eternal torment. And that that was really a later development in history. It's not the biblical picture. 
But this exclusivist view, right, the, the idea that Christians hold the exclusive hold on God and that everybody else is going to perish unless they convert is a minority view in our faith. And that even the Roman Catholic Church rejected this view at the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. And most Protestant denominations also have more open views about how Christians relate to those of other faiths. And I wish there was time this morning to kind of go through all of the myriad different views that uh, delineate this landscape that people who follow Jesus offer on the topic. But I think what I am going to do is offer you three Jesus-shaped postures that we can take toward people of other faiths. And then I'm going to focus in and talk about this pneumocentric, this Holy Spirit-centered lens that I've found helpful in hopes that you also will find it helpful. Right, so the first posture that we take toward people of other faiths is one of non-rivalry. Right, it's a posture of non-rivalry. I think that the story of Jesus reveals that we follow a completely non-rivalrous God. Right, we describe God as a God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Right, that God is a community of persons. And what that does is it paints a picture of an inherently relational, equal, and non-rivalrous God. Right? God the Father is not competing with God the Son. God the Son is not competing with God the Spirit. God the Spirit is not in competition with God the Father. Right? It's a relationship that we would say of mutuality, of shared power, and of shared respect for the various functions of each aspect of God. That is the picture that we have in essence of the God that we are called to imitate. And then further, I think the Bible reveals that God also doesn't compete with either humans or with nature. Right, Philippians 2, 5 to 8 says, In your relationships with one another, I want you to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Right, so what the Apostle Paul is saying to us there is that Jesus didn't even use his God nature to like one-up us humans. Right, he didn't use his God nature to try and dominate us or to conquer us, but rather he emptied himself. He emptied himself to become our equal in order to display God's love for all of humanity. And so I propose that the path that we tread when we imitate Jesus in this, it leads us to behave as if we also are non-rivalrous with others, right? And that when we're vying for power with other people, with other faiths, when we're vying for respectability, when we're vying for rightness, when we're vying for domination, all of that just loses its appeal in the reflection of Jesus, and I think that maintaining a non-rivalrous posture towards others doesn't mean that we turn into wishy-washy people who lack all conviction. You know, I, I am a full-fledged Jesus lover, right? I love Jesus. I follow Jesus. I will teach others to follow in the way of Jesus. But what we're called to do is to bear witness to that which we believe, right? We're called to bear witness to that which we believe, not to judge other people's beliefs or lack thereof, right? I can have full confidence in Jesus as the path to life without the kind of certainty that leads me to try and dominate or conquer another person. Like, I have no need to do either of those things. 
And when Jesus was a human, he expressly did not dominate or conquer us humans, but rather he witnessed to a thoroughly good God through his embodied sacrificial love, and he showed us how to do likewise, right? He said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I think the golden rule applies to people of other faiths as much as it does to our friends and to our families, right? We treat our siblings of other faiths with mutual respect the way we ourselves would want to be treated. And I can say that, but I also think that Jesus did prophetically denounce rivalrous, power-seeking religion of all stripes, right? Especially that embodied in the Roman Empire and its practices, but also within his own faith tradition. You know, many of us in this room identify as Christians, certainly not all, but many of us do, or as Jesus followers. And I think that there is so much good that comes from our faith, or I wouldn't do what I do. But I think everyone in here is well aware that Christianity hitched to power-seeking agendas is poisonous, right? Christianity hitched to power-seeking agendas is poisonous. And we see this playing out in our country right now. And I think any faith tradition that breathes into sacrificing its vulnerable and dominating others, that can be prophetically called out, right? We should denounce fundamentalism in all of its forms in any religion, but especially when we see it rearing up in our own tradition, right? Jesus saved his most searing condemnations for the power-seeking religious figures, right? He said, you brood of vipers, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I've got a snake phobia anyway, but you brood of vipers, right? Jesus stands in the long line of Hebrew prophets who warned people about what happens when a rivalrous mindset blinds us to the suffering of others, right? When we start to harm others in the name of being right. But then there's a small voice in my head that protests and says, okay, but wait, isn't calling out rivalrous sacrificial religion, doesn't that create rivalry? Am I now creating a rivalry with that? But I think no, because rivals desire the same object. You can't be in rivalry with someone if you're not actually competing for the same object. I think we can hold systems to account without hoping to gain any of the power lost by that system. Right, that our hope lies in Jesus, our hope lies in the foolishness of the cross, and that we don't aspire to worldly power. Right? The Apostle Paul said, when I'm weak, I am strong. It's in the witness of emptying out our power for the sake of others, for the sake of love, that we are most effectual in our witness to who God is. Right? So the first posture is being non-rivalrous. The second one, that is a Jesus-shaped posture toward people of other faiths, is one of non-judgment. Now, I know that I've shared this story before, uh, probably a couple of times, but it's stuck with me and I think it bears repeating. So a few years back, this was probably almost 10 years ago now, there was a young man who was attending a church membership class that I was teaching. And he asked me, he said, you know, I've got a Hindu grandma in India. Do you think that she's going to hell? Because I really don't think that I could attend this church if that's what you're going to teach or preach because I've got kids. I'm not going to teach them that about their grandma. And she's the most loving and kind and generous and wise woman I know. Like, she's so spiritually mature. I feel like I would be lucky if I could be like that when I'm older, right? Which is the same question that we heard from my friend Deb at the beginning of the sermon, right? It's, but what about my grandma? And the Bible passage that came to my mind when I was talking to that man it's from 1 John 4, 7 to 8, which says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. 
everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. I said, you know, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God. So that idea that everyone who loves, that seems inclusive of your grandmother. But, you know, I'm not the judge of anyone's soul. I don't know your grandma. I've never met your grandma. And I would say God alone knows her heart that that's not my place to do that. Because in scripture, our job is to bear witness to love and Jesus's job is to judge. It's not ours. John 5.22 says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he's trusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Right? And a posture of non-judgment is a posture of humility. Right? It's recognizing that we are not wise enough, we are not equipped, and we are not empowered by God to judge another's heart. Right? We are not wise enough, we are not equipped, and we are not empowered by God to judge another's heart, right? That humility recognizes our human limitations, right? That judging is not our gift, right? We see this play out just even in our origin story, right? God tells us not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which would try to make us like God, to try and take on God's judge, because it leads us to death, right? That is not life-giving for humanity, so when we're rooted in humility, we can move from speaking out of a place of certainty to speaking out of a place of confidence, right? So the language of the Bible is that of confidence. I actually owe this to Ken. I think this was a beautiful insight that you had, that the language of the Bible is confidence, assurance, and hope, not certainty. Hebrews 3, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence, and to the hope in which we glory. Hebrews 11, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. Right? I can have confidence. I have assurance in Jesus. I have hope in Jesus. And I think Christians can be fully Christian, right? We can embrace the Jesus path completely, confidently, while acknowledging that we humans can never be certain of anything. Right? I'm a Christian. I accept Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. I will share that. I can be declarative about that belief, but only under the auspices of, but I could be wrong. Right? That, but I could be wrong, has to permeate our being. It's not the, you know, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm the last one who emptied the dishwasher. <laughs> right? <laughs> because what you're really saying is, I absolutely know that I'm the last one that did the, the dishwasher. <laughs> it's not the same, right? That but I could be wrong has to actually be, I, I actually could be wrong because we could be. We are, likely are about at least a portion of what we hold to be true, right? The Apostle Paul warns us, he says, we see through a glass darkly and the person that we're talking to could be right. They could be more so right than us. And Jesus understood this relationship-killing aspect of judging, right? Matthew 7, do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and yet you don't pay attention to that big old giant plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all of the time there's that big old plank in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
right? So we're non-rivalrous and we're non-judgmental. And the third posture is that we are non-heroic, right? So in our tradition, the task of saving other people belongs to Jesus alone, right? Jesus says, nobody can come to the Father Um, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. The theologian Roberta Bondi, she describes how when we become aware of our dependency on God and on others, we start to understand that we are not knights in shining armor for either non-Christians or for the oppressed. I'm going to say that again. She says that we are not knights in shining armor for either non-Christians or for the oppressed. But rather than seeing ourselves as saviors of others, that we have to embrace our common humanity. And then we make ourselves available for God to work through us for the sake of others, right? So it's an attitude of the heart is the difference. It's an attitude of the heart that says, it's not I, but God. It is not I, but God. And I think this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he wrote this in Corinthians. He said, I am the least of the apostles, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Right? We are saved by grace, by the grace of God, not by our fellow humans. Right? And so the, the white savior mentality that I think many white Western Christians maintain, and I would include myself in that and a version of my younger self in that, That white savior mentality is where we feel burdened to save the world. And I think that that's been toxic to interfaith dialogue, to racial relations, and to missions work. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't do any sorts of missions work. I think there are a good number of missionaries, especially people providing medical care, education, support for orphanages, interfaith dialogue, I think they do it out of a motivation not to be heroes, but because they genuinely feel that their faith compels them to supply valuable skills and goods where it's needed. And I would hope that anybody of any faith or ethnicity would do the same for their neighbors, whether that's local or global. But providing care doesn't always translate into a hero complex, but I want to mention it because I think a sizable portion of American Christianity is driven by a white savior mentality. And again, this goes back to that we have to recognize our human limits with humility. Right? Humility admits that we don't have any way to verify the truth claims of a religion that we don't practice. Right? That's beyond our ability. All we can do is bear witness to the Jesus that we love. We can't save anybody. We cannot possibly know everything. And we cannot adequately judge the state of another's soul. But what we can do is we can offer the treasures that we have found in Jesus as gifts. Right? And then we trust that if God draws all people to God's self, then the attractiveness of this God who is love is enough. And then in turn, I think we can receive the gifts of other faiths. We can receive those gifts as valuable in return. I didn't put that in here, but I know I've talked many times, like, you know, I spent time in the Buddhist world, and there's a lot of commonalities between Christianity and Buddhism, but there are some very real differences in how we approach various topics But man, there are some beautiful things that I learned from spending time among the Tibetan Buddhists. And part of that was meditation, solitude, um, real tender care for all living creatures of the earth. You know, I I was a vegetarian for five years. It impacted me so much. And then I ate bacon and I haven't gone back. But I mean, there's a real beauty contained in, in that 
faith tradition that we can learn from. And when we can see another faith tradition that way, that creates relationships of mutuality, right? It's not a relationship where I feel like, actually, I feel like I'm really right and you're really wrong because nobody wants to be approached that way. I don't want to be approached that way, right? And mutual relationships with others can hold and they can handle diversity. We practice this in our own lives all the time. And I would say that especially if you're in an interfaith relationship of any sort, Right? We can remain mutually respectful and in loving relationships with people who are different from us. And so when we approach people of other faiths charitably and humbly, I think we can really benefit and experience God's good realm in our midst. Right? So the three shapes, the three uh, Jesus postures are non-rivalry, non-heroic, and non-judgmental. And I think that these three postures toward others, they free us up to be curious and we can be open-hearted toward other people. We can be charitable. We can be willing to learn. Not afraid of the other. You know, God isn't contained in a, a Christian-shaped box that only people with a particular birthright can open. Right? On the contrary, in our tradition, every single human bears the image of God. And so every single human carries some element of the divine, right? My view of God at work in the world goes far beyond God at work in Christians or the Christian church, right? God's spirit has been unleashed into the world, right? If Jesus is alive, as we proclaim and profess, I proclaim and profess, if Jesus is alive, Jesus can still speak. Jesus does that through the spirit that's been unleashed into the world, blowing and roaming where she will. And it is our good pleasure to watch for the signs of the spirit in mysterious places. Right? This is the pneuma-centric view of the world, the Holy Spirit-centered view of the world. And it was Dr. Clark Pinnock. He was actually an evangelical Canadian theologian of the Holy Spirit who talked about this for a long time, he championed what he called the spirit-oriented theology of missions and of interfaith relations. He said, openness to others doesn't imply that they've heard God's voice accurately and that they know only truth with no admixture of error. And the same with us. All of us make mistakes in our theologies because God's ways are not coercive. But we shouldn't prejudge such things. Spirit is present everywhere. And God's truth may have penetrated any given religion and culture at some point, and we should be eager to find out. Right? Our scriptures even allude to humans of different backgrounds operating out of this same spirit of love. Right? Jesus tells us, he says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. And then in Acts 10, this is the one that blew my mind. When I was like 25, I read it and I was like, what is up with this? In Acts chapter 10, there's a story about a man named Cornelius. And I always just want to call him Corny, <laughs> right? And Corny is a Roman centurion in the Italian regiment, right? So he's a Roman Empire soldier who oversees other soldiers. He's not a Jewish man. He's never heard of Jesus. And yet, he's described as devout and God-fearing, and the evidence they give for him being devout and God-fearing is that he gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God as he understood God. Right? So Cornelius, who was a man of war, who was part of the oppressing empire, was judged by God to be so faithful that he became the conduit for the Apostle Peter's acceptance of the Gentiles into the wider family of God. Right? This was a huge move in the New Testament. And that is not who I would have laid my money on God using. But God sees other people differently than we do. 
And I think that perhaps God needed the oppressed Jewish people to know and to understand that God's grace extends to even those we might be tempted to exclude. Right? I know that I have recognized this spirit of the God who is love and people who do not call it by the same name that I call it. Right? And so the marker that I look for people who walk a similar path to me is love. Right? Just like what my friend Deb was recognizing in her Buddhist grandma. Right? The spirit of love is less concerned with theology than it is with relationship. And how it's all going to wash out in the coming age is beyond my ability to know. And I would say that being a follower of Jesus, I, I sometimes wonder in my own imagination that, you know, what if Jesus is presented to all of the souls of everyone who has been, who is, and who yet will be, and that some will recognize this Jesus as the revelation of the spirit that they've been following, right? That's how I imagine it. But I could be wrong, right? So this pneumocentric view, this spirit-centered view of our faith, it recognizes that the spirit of love, it moves where it will, it moves on whom it will, and it will do so regardless of what our theological constructs are. Right? When you see the, the Holy Spirit described in Scripture, right, it's not containable, it's not controllable, it's not predictable, it's described as wind, it's described as fire, it's water, it's breath, it's a river that's flowing out of the heart of God and into the world. Right? John chapter 3 says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You can hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And that's my offering to you. So we always do a meditation. We usually take two to three minutes of either silence or guided meditation. And I think we'll do a little guided meditation this morning. Just get comfortable. You don't have to do it if you don't want. Just might you take a couple of deep breaths. Spirit, we recognize that you are here, you are everywhere, you hold all things together. And we ask that you would speak to us this morning. So I'd like you to start by imagining yourself in a place that is both comfortable to you, safe, as well as beautiful, and that can be any space and let's just sit in that space and breathe with the spirit of love around us. You can notice just what it looks like and smells like and feels like.
I invite you to imagine that Jesus comes up and sits beside you. Or if you will, however it is that you picture this God who is love. And as you're just sitting there with Jesus or with this picture of love, I invite you to just um, begin just talking in your mind um, about something that's maybe caused you a little bit of stress this week, maybe a situation at work or at home. And if you don't have something like that, you can just feel free to sit there. But if you've had something that's sort of been churning in your mind, I just invite you to offer that to Jesus and just lay it out for his consideration. Jesus, we confess that it's sometimes hard to see where your spirit is at work, especially in really complicated or really heartbreaking situations. I invite you that if you're willing and this feels comfortable, that you can imagine Jesus just coming around in front of you and just gently laying his hands or his fingers on your eyes. And Jesus, I just pray that you would give us eyes to be able to see your spirit at work in the world, even in places and in people that do not seem ripe for your spirit to be at work. I ask that you could help us to see where it is that you're moving and on whom um, you are working. And especially to make ourselves available if there's some way that your spirit of love wants to work through us in that situation, that you would help make that known to us. Holy Spirit, we pray for your empowerment We pray for your infilling, your indwelling inside of us, that you would renew the way that we look at the world around us, that we would be able to find the sacred in all of the different spaces of our lives. I ask that you would help make us more in tune with that, that we can better reflect the love of a God who is love into the world. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.